How many of you are excited tonight to be in church? Did y'all get one of these? They did not hand them out. Okay, ushers, do you have these? Oh, somebody find Valerie. Okay, we'll get them to you. Because we're going to do something special. Uh, we close Galatians out tonight. And I decided to try something I've never done on Wednesday nights. I'm going to do it for two weeks. We're, you're going to get one of these tonight. And it says, things you always wanted to ask Pastor Jeff about the Word, but we're afraid to ask. And, and okay. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to take two weeks to just answer one after another after another, as many as I can get through. Now, don't ask me if I believe in space aliens. <laughs> don't go into bizarre stuff. Uh, I want questions about the Word. Now, I know that, you know why I'm doing this? Because I constantly get questions about the Word from our precious people. And so I want to just take two weeks, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to put the question on the screen. Of course, it's anonymous. So you, if you do ask me if there's space aliens, you can do it anonymously. But I'll put them up there. There they are. They're being passed out. And so just grab one, and you have the rest of the service to think about it. And at the end of the service, just write it down, uh, and the ushers are going to be at the door. Right, ushers? You're going to be at the door. And drop it in the bucket as you leave. And if you want to think about it the rest of the week and do it this weekend, you can do it then. And I'm going to take the questions that I think are the most universal, that probably most of you would like to know, and I'm going to answer them. One after another after another. Now, you know how gutsy this is? Because I know what I'm going to get, some of the questions I'm going to get. So uh, there you go. Simple little handout. If you want to drop it in the bucket tonight when we leave, uh, go ahead. If you want to think about it, pray about it, get a vision from heaven about what you're supposed to ask me. But we'll handle as many of them as we can in two weeks. Then after those two weeks, we're diving into the amazing, stupendous, unsurpassed Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to deal, and it, it is so rich, uh, so filled with incredible stuff. It's Jesus' masterpiece. And so don't miss that. But before we get to that, we're going to do these two weeks on questions you always wanted to ask, but were afraid to ask. And no question, believe me, don't feel bad about any question you've got. Because if you've got the question, it's meaningful. I'm not going to look at it and go, hey, elders and Kathy and everybody come here and look at this one. I'm not going to do that. All right? It's not going to happen. So let's pray together and we're going to finish out Galatians tonight. And it's great stuff. Father, we just thank you right now for the word of the Lord. We thank you for this incredible letter to the Galatians that has so fed our souls the last 14 weeks. We pray that tonight you will help us to end it strong. And thank you, Lord God, that your word lives, that it pulsates with life, and that it builds our faith and strengthens our hope and helps us to grow into maturity. We thank you, Lord, tonight for your blessing in Jesus' name. Can you breathe a prayer and say, Lord, speak to me? I receive your word in Jesus' name. Amen.
Now, ushers, are you still passing these out? Uh, if you don't have one of these handouts, would you raise your hand and make sure we see you? Okay, back there, just a few folks. Back over that way. Ushers, do you all see them? Um, you all keep your hands raised. There we go. And we'll get you. Good. Now, tonight we're going to talk about something that I think the church lacks in. And, uh, the, you know, the church is good in, in a lot of uh, areas. The church is strong. But there are areas where the church, at least the American church, is the only church I know about, is weekend. And it's the ministry of restoration. Now, before we jump into that, just recapping a little bit. In chapter 5, we looked at the nine fruits of the Holy Spirit by dividing them into three categories. Three categories. The first three, what were they? Love, joy, and peace. How many of you wish you had more of all three of those? And what we call them, those are the emotional fruits of the Spirit. Those are the ones you feel emotionally. I love you, or I got joy, or peace. I love peace, don't you? The older I get, the quieter I like it. Amen? I need to quit saying things like that. I'm aging myself. But anyway, now the second three long-suffering, kindness, and goodness. Those are the evidential fruits of the Spirit. What we mean by that is, if you're saved, there should be evidence. There should be evidence. It should show. You don't get saved and go live like the devil. God changes you. There's evidence. Well, long-suffering, kindness, and goodness are evidential. They are evidence that you have had an experience with God or that you're growing in the Spirit. Because patience or long-suffering doesn't come naturally to anybody. We want patience now. Right? Kindness, I don't think, comes naturally. And goodness, especially in our day, people just aren't kind. Not like they used to be. And the last three, faith, gentleness, and temperance, which is self-control, are the elemental fruits of the Spirit, meaning uh, that this is elementary, dear Watson, that if you're saved, the foundation of salvation is faith, gentleness, and self-control. It's, it's elemental. These are the basics. These are the things we ought to be experiencing in our spiritual growth. It, it's not faith that moves mountains. Remember, it's faithfulness, loyalty, uh, dependability, faithfulness. That's really what that word faith there is referring to, faithfulness instead of being a covenant breaker, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The Bible says if you can't control yourself, uh, your emotions, just who you are, then, then you're uh, worse than a city that is broken down and without walls. The enemy just comes and goes if you don't have self-control. So we need self-control. Now, the law of Moses that Paul mentions so often in Galatians is powerless to produce those nine fruits. You don't produce those fruits by law. How are they produced? They grow within the heart of the believer only by a daily abiding in Christ Jesus through prayer, the word, and a life of obedience. That's it. We grow those spiritual fruits by abiding in the vine. That's it. So every day, what's our job? Plug in to that vine. That's it. You're only as strong as your last time with God. 
And you can't live on last year's revelation. You can't live on a a touch you had from God 10 years ago. We need one every day. And so I know I'm a broken record with this, but if you want to grow spiritually, then you've got to abide in that vine who is Jesus Christ and do it daily. And you do it by the holy habits. The holy habits are prayer, time in the word and fellowship with the saints of God. You can't fellowship with a TV screen. People say, well, you know what? I'm just too tired. I'm just going to stay home and watch Christian TV. Well, you know what? If I can't get to church, I'll do that. If I can find something I want to listen to. But otherwise, I should be at church where there's people with skin on them. Because I cannot fellowship with a TV screen. The TV screen can't say, how are you doing? A TV screen can't reach their hands through and, and pray with me. Okay? So we need one another. We need to one another one another right? Now, uh, so if you're going to grow spiritually, it's this simple. You must abide in the vine. You do it by holy habits. The holy habits are prayer, time in the word, and fellowship with the saints. Holy habits. That's it. Now, in chapter 6, Paul focuses on the backslider. And the love the believer is called to exercise toward them. Now, how many of you know that Christians can backslide? I would ask you if any of you have ever backslid, but I don't want to see those hands. That's none of my business. That's between you and God. But in Galatians 6, after talking about love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, kindness, faith, he now tells us how to deal in love with somebody who slips and falls. This is not an apostate. This is a backslider. It's not somebody who renounces the faith. It's somebody who, for whatever reason, drifts away, falls into some kind of sin, and gets out of fellowship with God and with his people. The backslider. Now, here it is in verse 1. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, do what? Condemn such a one. Oh, I'm sorry. I read that wrong. Let's start over. You who are spiritual, reject such a one. I can't see that good up there. Restore. Isn't that what it says? Because carnal people do the first two. They condemn and they reject. But he said, if you want to be considered spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. The King James says meekness. Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. that's, That's really one of the key verses for any counselor. But now let's move on. The word overtaken when he says if any man is overtaken in a trespass the word overtaken comes from a greek word meaning to be found out or detected so the jig is up what you were hiding comes out it's discovered it's detected it's brought to the light publicly it can also mean a brother or sister is, uh, well, okay, publicly, ex- publicly exposed as being in some sin. Or it can also mean that the person was themselves caught off guard by a trespass. You know, the word offense, when it talks about somebody being offended, it means a person who trips. They stumble. And I have talked to people who have backslidden or have gotten caught up in something that was certainly not of God in their life. And I have, 
seen that they themselves are shocked that they ended up there, that this happened to them. They're caught off guard. They're stunned. How, how did I end up there? You, you never could have convinced me I could have gone there. I'm, I'm overtaken. I, I am, I'm as shocked as you are. And this happens to people. It really does. And, and they, they find themselves in something that later they'll tell you, of all people, I am most surprised that I ended up in that position. Now, the word trespass, if any man is overtaken in a trespass, it means a falling aside. It's used to describe a breach of God's law or a moral fall or a falling away from the truth. Trespass. Now, in the context of Galatians and everything we've learned in Galatians, no doubt about it, it's talking about the works of the flesh. Because he gives us that whole ugly list of the works of the flesh. So there's no question this is on his mind when he writes about falling in a trespass. The works of the flesh. Whether moral or doctrinal, some kind of fall is envisioned here. This person falls flat on their face. And the word restore is katartidzo. Katartidzo. And it's the same word used to describe James and John mending their nets. What does it say that we're to do? We're to restore like James and John were mending the net. When Jesus approached them and called them, Peter was casting the net, but John was mending the net. And that's the way their ministries ended up. Peter the net caster, John the net mender. We need both in church. We need net casters and we need net menders. But the spiritual people, are supposed to see people with, as it were, torn or ripped or damaged nets. Their souls are damaged. They are not what they should be. Instead of condemning them or going up to them and ripping the net worse, those who are spiritual are to go up and mend the net. It's also used to describe God's creativity, katartidzo. Uh, it says in Hebrews 11.3, and I love this because this totally kicks evolution right out the door. It says, let's read it together. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed, katartidzo, there you go, prepared, put together, assimilated, assembled by the word of God, not evolution. So, First, you have the idea of mending. Then you have the, the idea of putting something together, assembling it the way it was meant to be, in a divine order. And then the Greeks use the word to describe the action of a physician healing a broken bone, katartidzo. Such a procedure called for knowledge, skill, and care. It was not a task for just anybody. Mishandling of a fracture could make it worse. So Paul declares, if you're going to go and fix somebody's broken bone, if you're going to mend the net of their soul, if you're going to help assemble them in divine order, you're going to have to be spiritual. And mature and walking in the right spirit. Or you'll rip the net worse or, or set the bone wrong or put them together in a way that God never intended So 
correcting faults and correcting failings among the brethren takes spiritual people who are moving in the spirit of the Lord. So who is spiritual? Who is spiritual? What does the Bible consider to be spiritual? It is that person he described in chapter 5, the one that exhibits the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering with people, gentle, kind, faithful, Jesus-like, Christ-like, not finger-pointers and condemners and lecturers and stompers and kickers and none of that. Okay? But spiritual, that's what spiritual people are. It's not the gifts they move in. It's the fruit they manifest. Because I've seen people move in the gifts who were hellacious to be around. Not like Jesus at all. Tongues don't make you spiritual. Laying hands on somebody who's sick and seeing them healed does not make you spiritual. What makes you a spiritual person is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, kindness, faith. And against such there is no law. Now, restoration comes as the restorer or the restoring one operates on them with love and compassion, calmly with gentleness. you got to think of the Good Samaritan. I think Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan so that we would know how to pick somebody up who had fallen. I really do. Because you think about that story. We've all heard of it. It's one of his, his most uh, famous parables. Remember that story? He, he pours oil and wine. The, the Good Samaritan sees the man beaten up and robbed and left on the side of the road dying. Now think for a minute. The devil beats you up, leaves you on the side of the road, bleeding and dying, doesn't he? So the, the robber is a Satan-like person. The Good Samaritan sees them. Everybody else has passed them by. That's the main thing. All the religious people in Jesus' parable had looked and sort of harumphed and walked on and passed them by and didn't lift a finger to help the bleeding, destroyed person on the side of the road. But then came the Good Samaritan. He, he pours in oil and wine, a picture of the Holy Ghost, a picture of the love of the Holy Spirit. Uh, oil is always a picture of the Holy Spirit that burns in the lamp. That's the Holy Spirit. Pours it into the open wound, oil to soothe and wine to cleanse. He picks up that fallen one then, surrounds him with love, is not afraid of the cost that is going to be required to get him restored. Are y'all with me? This moves me as I'm sharing it right now. This good Samaritan is the way that every member of the body of Christ is supposed to be towards the fallen. He picks up that fallen one, surrounds him with love. He's not afraid of what's going to cost him. He provides out of his own pocket for his continual care. And there you have the picture. Of the, takes him to a hotel and pays for his room. And ministers to him until he's on his feet again. Far too often, the fallen in the church are treated like lepers. Now I'm going to say that again. Far too often, I've seen it over and over again, the fallen are treated like lepers by the church of the Lord Jesus Christ when our Savior gave us the perfect picture in the story of the Good Samaritan how to treat the fallen, how to treat the hurt, how to treat the bleeding, how to minister to the one that's down. 
Even the world doesn't shoot its own that are found wounded on the battlefield. Can you imagine being in, in, a, uh, in an army and you're meeting another army, your enemy, in a field and a bullet wings you in the arm and you fall down? Can you imagine one of your own army coming up and saying, man, you got hit. Why'd you let yourself get hit? How could you let yourself? This happened to you. Bloom! But I'm going to tell you, I've been on the receiving end of that. And it is vicious. And it is painful. And I told myself, I will never do anyone that way. Because when you're fallen, when you're down, when you're shot, you need a good Samaritan. You need Jesus coming up and going, let me pour in the Holy Spirit. Let me pour in the cleansing wine. Let me get you on your feet. I don't care what it costs me. I don't care what links I've got to go. You are worth restoring. You are worth getting back in the race. You are worth, because you're a valuable soldier. So whatever it costs me, I'm going to pay it to get you restored. And I've seen many through the years treated the same way. And it's a, it's a sad thing because... Um, like I said, even the secular lost world doesn't do that. The church does too often. It's one of the great shortcomings and the glaring faults of the body of Christ. No doubt, Paul has in mind those that had already fallen prey to the false teachers. The whole book of Galatians is about those false teachers that came into the church and they were luring and seducing and deceiving uh, Paul's spiritual children it back into Judaism, and many of them had fallen into it. So there's no doubt about it that they were now seeing their mistake, and they were wounded on the side of the road because they had believed doctrinal error. Their relationship with Jesus had been hindered or hurt or cut off altogether. And Paul is now telling the truly spiritual people, don't you dare kick the ones out who believe those lies. Don't you dare treat them carnally. I want you to do with them what the Good Samaritan did. You restore them. Every one of them are worth restoring. Church, there's not a child of God that's not worth restoring. I mean, there's not one. And, and you know what? I don't know of a child of God that's ever fallen that did not hate it deep in their innermost, innermost hate that they fell. Would do anything to reverse it. They're not sitting there going, all right, good deal, you know, I, I, I fell, I'm in sin now, I'm loving this. No, they hate every microsecond of it. But they know they're fallen. They need restorers, not elder brothers. Remember the elder brother in the prodigal son? Prodigal son goes off into sin. I love Jesus' parables. The prodigal son goes off into sin, spends all of his inheritance on prostitutes and crazy wild living, comes to himself and says, what in the world have I been doing? I lost my mind. He says, I'm going home, but I know the father isn't going to receive me as a son, but I'll just tell him I'm willing to be a servant because even the servants have it better than I have it in this pig pen. So he gets this speech in his head. He's ready to give his speech to the father. The father sees him coming from a distance, has been waiting for him the whole time, has not one time disowned him as a son. I'm going to say it again. Has not one time disowned him as a son. Didn't say, well, I disowned you, but since you're repenting, you're back again. You're unborn, then born, unborn, then born. 
Unborn, then born. Lost, then found. Lost, then found. I'm lost this week, found the next week. No, I never disowned you. I knew you would come to this. I knew what was in the far country. I knew it would eat you alive. I knew that it would destroy you and that you'd end up in the equivalent of a pig pen, eating pig food, remembering the way you had it. I was just waiting on you because some things you need to come to yourself. No one can tell you. You've got to find out yourself. So I've been waiting, looking at the horizon for you to return. I knew you'd be back. He didn't even get his speech out. He didn't even get a chance to say all that he had in his mind. He said, bring the fatted calf, put shoes on his feet, put a ring on his finger, put a robe of righteousness back on him. For this, my son, who was lost, is now found. Now, amen. That's the prodigal son. So in the same way the prodigal came to himself, these people in Galatia, these saints who had been won to Christ by Paul, were seeing their mistake. And they needed the gentle hand of restoration, not the slap of condemnation. The apostle urges, don't discard them. Don't reject them. Don't turn them aside. Rather, you who are spiritual, say it with me, everybody, restore them. You who are spiritual must undertake the task of correcting faults and failings among the brethren. Now, the restoration, says Paul, must be done in a spirit of meekness. Now, how come? Why do he say you better restore in meekness and gentleness, watching yourself, considering yourself? Well, it's because meekness, that fruit of the Spirit, is the very best in dealing with the fallen. It's disarming. It carries with it no sense of blame. It doesn't lecture. Don't you hate being lectured? It doesn't lecture. It doesn't need to lecture. The reproofs and the consequences of their sin is lecturing them every day. It doesn't express disgust. It's keenly aware of how easy it is for anyone to fall. The person walking in meekness will be considering himself lest, lest he too be tempted. Very important here. The word for consider Considering yourself is scopeo, scopeo, and it refers primarily to a watchman, and it means scope. You see the word scope in there? You're scoping yourself out. You're, you're, you're checking your own heart out because you don't want to go counsel somebody and try to take the speck out of their eye when there's a two-by-four in your own eye. You can't have the same thing in your own life and operate on somebody else's. I'm not going to let an ophthalmologist touch my eye who, who's got a big patch on his own eye. But a lot of Christians, they live in, you know, the same thing they condemn others for. So he's saying the idea is that the one doing the restoring must be ever mindful of his own frailty because temptation lurks in the path of all of us. How many of you know you could fall? Boy, I wish I'd have seen every hand. Not me, Pastor Jeff. I've been walking with God for 40 years. Oh, watch it, brother. Hey, one day at a time, sweet Jesus, one day at a time. Amen? 
How often have we heard of a would-be counselor who has fallen into the very sin from which he has been seeking to rescue somebody else? Paul then uses the illustration of a burden bearer. In verse 2, after talking about restoration, he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, I am. The law of Christ is the all-encompassing law of love. What is the law? Notice he says, fulfill the law of Christ. What is it? What's the law of Christ? It's love. The Judaizers were trying to load those believers down with the impossible burden of the law and Jewish tradition, which we saw over and over again in Galatians, can't save you. You can't do it. You can't perform it. There's no way you can keep all the commandments because the commandments are weak because of our flesh. Jesus graphically described the Pharisees, and I've known a few. Matthew 23, verse 4. What do they do? They bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on your shoulders. But they themselves won't move them with one of their fingers. In other words, do what I say, but don't do what I do, and I'll lay a burden on you, but I'm not going to lay the same burden on me. And that's what the Pharisees were great at. This should not be so of us. Listen, Christianity is not a burden. It is not a bunch of rules and regulations. It is a relationship with the living God through his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, my burden is light and my yoke is easy. So anytime my life gets too difficult, I know that's not the Lord because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Now, uh, far from putting additional legalistic burdens on each other, we ought to look for opportunities to bear the already heavy burdens that some of our brothers and sisters in Christ are bearing. That's the law of love. Such brethren are everywhere. In this room, there are so many burdens being carried by people. In this room, some deal with financial burdens. A lot in our current uh, economy are dealing with that. Uh, others have physical infirmities that they wake up with every day. It's a burden, and they carry it. They have to. They haven't been healed yet. It's there and they carry it. Still others are burdened daily by wayward loved ones. They wake up knowing their children are living like demons and, and could be destroyed by what they're doing, and it's a burden on them. Others carry a load of guilt and shame. They can't get past it. They just cannot get past it. I dealt with, a, I dealt with an individual this week that cannot get past something they did. They just can't get past it. No matter how much I talk about the blood, the power of the blood, they have the hardest time forgiving themselves. They're not in the church, so I'm not telling on anybody. Because a lot of you are looking around. <laughs> it's nobody here. But they couldn't get past it. They can't forgive themselves. They can't look themselves in the mirror and say, I forgive you as God has forgiven you. They can't get past it. So it's, a, it's a burden. So what are we to do? We're to help bear one another's burdens, help them carry the load. That's the law of Christ. That's the law of Christ. It's like Simon of Cyrene, the black man. When Jesus was carrying the cross up the hill and couldn't make it, he dropped. And they, and they forced Simon to help him carry it. 
And he, and he helped Jesus carry that cross. That's the picture. We move in with our brother, pray with them, encourage them. We're to encourage one another daily as we see the day approaching. That, that's the purpose. That's why you can't talk to a TV screen and it can't really reach out and talk to you personally. There are plenty of burdens to be shared in this fallen world of ours, everybody. Plenty. As a minister, I often recite to myself the Lord's words, quote, Inasmuch as you've done unto the least of these, my brethren, the least of these, you have done it to me. I quote that to myself a lot. If I'm really down in the gutter with someone and it's dirty and it's difficult and it's stinky and it's hard, I tell myself, would I do this for Jesus? Oh, in a heartbeat then I'll do it for them. And as much as I've done it for them, I'm doing it for him. It's not just for that person. When we think that what, what we're doing for a brother or sister is the same as doing it for the Lord, it turns the task into a joy. Now, next, Paul gives advice for practical Christian living. That's what I love about Paul. He closes all of his letters with practical Christian living. Day to day, how are you going to walk this out when you wake up in the morning and go to work? How you walk this thing out? He has three bits of counsel. Are you ready for them? Say with me, I'm ready. Turn to your neighbor and say, get ready for Paul's counsel. He's going to tell you how to live the Christian life where the rubber meets the road. Okay? First one, mark your own boundaries. Here's the verse. Verse 3. For if anyone thinks himself to be something, I could say somebody when he is what, everybody? Paul, you are hurting my self-esteem. Telling me I'm nothing. Do you know self-esteem, the way our culture is teaching it, will kill you and turn your children into demons? He's not telling you you don't have any value. He's saying don't think more of yourself than you should. Because if you do, you're deceiving yourself. In modern psychology, there is a phrase that describes what Paul is saying here. It's called the Peter Principle. What's the Peter Principle? It refers to the mistake of promoting a man beyond the level of his competence. That's the Peter Principle. Now, let me give you an example. A man might be a, a first-class salesman, great salesman, can sell ice to an Eskimo, okay? But that doesn't mean he's going to make a, a successful sales manager. I assure you. But you say, well, because he's a first-class salesman, he's going to make a great sales manager. You find out in a week or two, he has no clue how to deal with people in management. Paul's warning here against overestimating yourself. Mark your own boundaries. The moment you start thinking that you are somebody, you are headed for trouble. You know why? Because pride comes before a fall. I've told you, I have a habit, and I've had it as far back as I can remember. It doesn't matter if it's a Wednesday night. Tonight I'll do it. This weekend I'll do it twice. I go home right after a service before I let myself eat or do anything for myself. I go straight to my little place of prayer, 
and I say, Lord, I give you the glory for what happened. Even if the service was lackluster, I say, Lord, I thank you that anybody was there. I'm going to answer that phone. I say, Lord, I give you the glory. And you know why I do that? Because there is no way that I'm going to start walking around strutting that I had anything to do ultimately with what he did. Now, I cooperate. Of course I do. And I'm going to get reward for being obedient to the Lord in the ministry. But what happens spiritually, what happens supernaturally, and, and just the whole calling he's given me, that's to his glory. And I know that if he took, if he wanted to, he could take my breath away now. And that would be it. So I give him the glory. I do that because I know who did it. You ever think about that donkey riding into Jerusalem with Jesus on his back? He had never been ridden. That donkey had never experienced anything like what happened when Jesus got on his back and he was ridden into Jerusalem. What would you think if that little donkey with all the palm leaves falling in front of him and all the people going, Hosanna, Hosanna, if he had started strutting. <laughs> Would that be one deceived donkey? Wouldn't you want to go up and say, hey, dude, it's not you. It's who's on your back. <laughs> Come on, everybody. <laughs> so... We donkeys need to remember who we're carrying into Fort Worth. Or we should say, who's carrying us? Jesus is using us to bring him into the city, but all those palm leaves are for him, not you. Right? So that's the Peter principle. When you start thinking, when the donkey starts thinking, it's all about him. Pride comes before a fall. So we're to mark our boundaries. Remember who you are. The apostle's second word of advice is, mind your own business. I like that one. Can you tell your neighbor that? (laughs) Some of you turn right to your spouse. Mind your own business. Watch this. Look at verse 4. Let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. powerful verse there. This is a simple caution to everyone who's engaged in some form of Christian ministry. And that ought to be everybody in here. You're all at least a witness to his glory. We should avoid, like the plague, the subtle addiction to the approval of others. It's the wise, it's wisest to assess for yourself, for yourself. You assess the value of your own work. You assess it. Doesn't the Bible say, let a man examine himself? Let a man examine himself. People's opinions are fickle at best. Can I tell you the truth? People's opinions of you and me change like the wind. You're a hero one day, you're a zero the next. They pat you on the back one day, stab you in the back the next. In some cases, not always, but yeah, they do. Um, To your face... They'll tell you you're the greatest thing since peanut butter. Away from you, they're running you down. That's people. 
It is not in the province of one believer to assess the ministry of another. Can I be honest with you tonight? I've been around a while. I've been in the ministry a long time. And you're going to have to take right what I say here, the way I intend it. I don't care what people think. Now, I care about having a testimony for Christ. But as to their opinion about my ministry, I take it with a major grain of salt. I'm really getting more ornery the older I get. I'm just getting aware I don't care. Because I know they're not going to be there when I face the Lord. And their opinion isn't going to matter a hill of beans when I face the Lord. You know what's going to matter? What he thinks. So I've, I've decided I'm going to perform for an audience of one. I don't perform. Catch this now. This is very important. Because if you're always afraid of what people think about your ministry, you are paralyzed. If you really do try to please all the people all the time, you will have analysis paralysis. You will be paralyzed and get nothing done. So I've decided I, I know where I'm at. I know what I believe. I know where I stand. So I've decided I'm going to preach what I know I believe, and I let the chips fall. It's just that simple. I just let the chips fall. And if they don't like it, well, every once in a while, people leave because they get mad at something I said. Can you believe that? Me. They get mad at something I said. I just think I'm a likable, smiling kind of a pastor guy, but people get mad and they leave because I said something, literally. You know where I'm at? Okay. 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 Because they'll leave and five will replace them. And that's the way it works. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, so you know what? I assess myself. I look at, at, you know, are we seeing fruit? Are people being saved? Is God growing his church? Is he blessing it? And if so, then I'm okay. And as long as I have peace with him and I'm doing what I know he told me to do, I'm okay. I'm okay. I care about his opinion most. And, and shouldn't we? And do you? I hope so. Now the Bible says in Romans 14, 10 and 12, 10 through 12, why do you judge your brother? Why do you show contempt for your brother? For read, read the last part with me, everybody. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. As it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. Then Paul says, so each of us, read it with me, shall give account of himself to God. So be sure the way you're living you can face him with and give an account. The mature believer has learned to walk above the praise of men on the one hand and the abuse of men on the other hand. I don't let praise get to me and I don't let people abuse me. Don't do it. Our sole aim is to please the Lord. Now Paul's third word of advice is move your own burden. Move your own burden. 
Verse 5 says, for each one shall bear his own load. Now, this might sound confusing because in verse 2, we're told bear one another's burdens, right? So what does it mean, uh, you know, carry your own burden? Very interesting. Perk up. Watch this. A little bit of Greek here. The Greek word used for burden in verse 2 is baros or baros, which means a weight, something that presses on us physically, that which makes an exhausting demand upon our resources. But the word for burden in verse 5 is a totally different Greek word, fortion. And it means something we have to bear regardless of its weight. For instance, the Lord tells us that his burden, fortion is the word used, is light. Because no matter how heavy the load he puts upon us, he's going to make the heavy, or he's going to take the heavy end. He's going to help us carry it. By sympathy and help, we can assist somebody who's carrying a baros kind of burden, but everyone must carry his own fortion kind of burden. Here's what this means. Nobody can walk your walk for you and fulfill your ministry for you. You will not get into heaven on your grandma's coattails. You must carry that fortion yourself, your walk what God's called you to do. That's your burden. There are some things I can't carry for you and you can't carry for me. I'm going to have to carry it and you're going to have to carry it. And we carry it in the joy of the Lord, knowing that he's helping us carry it. So when I meet him, I'm going to answer for my own life. No one's going to answer for my life and I'm not going to answer for anybody else's. Then in verse six, Paul says, the teachers of the word should be supported financially. This is what verse six says. Let him who is taught the word communicate to him who teaches in all good things. The word for communicate is koinoneo, and it means to share in material things. I'm going to kick this. There we go. Did you all notice that patience I had? Because the clicker failed me again. All right. Uh, here's what Paul says. The scripture says, don't muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. And he uses this uh, in relation to teachers or those in full-time ministry being paid for it. He says the Old Testament law was that as that ox was treading out the corn, God said, don't muzzle that ox where he's doing all the work, but he gets none of the benefit. If he's treading out that corn, if he's plowing that field, take the muzzle off and let him eat some of it. Let him eat some of it. And that's the principle. The worker deserves his wages. Every worker in here say amen. amen. Now, next Paul discusses the law of the soil, which is the principle of sowing and reaping. Here's the law of the soil. Don't be deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he might reap. That's a guarantee, isn't it? He will reap exactly what he sowed. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. He who sows the spirit will of the spirit reap everlasting life. I preached on this just a few weeks ago. The word for deceived here is planao, and it means to cause to wander or go astray. We get the English word planet from this Greek word planao. Why, why would he use that? Because the ancient astronomers thought that the planets wandered 
through space in contrast with the fixed stars. So how does Scripture view somebody who is deceived? A wanderer. They're not fixed. They're not stable. They're wandering in the dark. So don't be a deceived wanderer. Don't think that if you sow something, you're going to reap something else. You're not. You can't sow bad and reap good. And guess what? You can't sow good and reap bad. It works both ways. The bottom line to the law of the soil is that we will reap according to what we sow. All seed is multiplied after its kind. That's the Genesis law. We will reap, read this with me, we will reap what we sow more than we sowed, later than we sowed it. Then in verse 9, Paul tells us that patience, patience is going to be required when you're sowing good seed. Please catch this, church, because too many people faint between sowing and reaping when it's good, when it's good seed. Look what he says in verse 9. Let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we will reap. What are we going to reap? We're going to reap good because we're doing good. If, everybody say if. If. You're going to reap if you don't, what does that tell you and me? If we don't lose heart, that we can actually sow good, but not have the patience to be there in the end when the harvest comes in. And guess what? Here's something really bad. Somebody else gets your harvest. A fundamental law of sowing and reaping is patience. It takes time for that seed to germinate. I remember in elementary school, all of us did this. Our teacher gave us some seeds, and you put it in a little deal, little cup. I was the worst of the worst of the worst. How many times did I dig that thing back up? She said, you just sow that seed and you water it. So I'd sow it and water it. Come in the next day, I'd look. There's nothing there. I'd say, something's wrong with that seed. So I'd dig it up and look at it. You okay? You down there? You able to germinate? Did you get the water? Put it back in. And and I did this over and over and over. Finally, everybody else around me is sprouting, but mine are still dead. Because I pull them up so many times, they croaked. I didn't understand. Once you got them in there, leave it alone. And she told me too, Jeffrey... The reason you don't have a harvest is because you kept pulling the seeds up. And see, we get so impatient. We so good, but then we don't have the patience to wait for it to come up. It takes time for it to germinate, to put out its first little roots and its first green shoot. Then it takes more time for the plant to develop and grow. Then it has to flower, and then the fruit has to form. Say with me the last three words, patience is required. If you got seed in the ground, trust God. But not just patience. He says persistence is also required. Look at verse 10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, the Greek here is this. Let us keep on keeping on persistently doing good. Don't do it once. And a year later, say, well, I didn't get any harvest. Keep on doing it. Somebody asked me this week, they said, Pastor Jeff, what, what if I sowed so much bad seed? I've got so many bad harvests coming. Is it even worth me walking with God? And I said, oh, yes. 
Start sowing fast and hard. You start sowing that good seed everywhere you can. And that good seed will come up and choke that bad seed. It's never too late to start walking with God. Sow, 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 sow. Keep on keeping on, persistently doing good. Don't give up, don't faint, don't falter, and especially do good to those of the household of faith. Doing good is the hallmark of the church. Before Christianity burst upon the world, folks, I assure you, there were no hospitals. There were no orphanages. There were no asylums. There were no schools for the children of the common folk. Do you know that? Christianity brought us all those things. It says that Jesus went about everywhere doing good. As our Savior lived, so should we. Be patient in doing good and be persistent in doing good. Your season of reaping is going to come, folks. Now we're coming towards the close. Chapter 6, verses 11 through 13 says, See with what large letters I've written to you with my own hand. Why do you say they were large? He had bad eyes. So when he wrote, it was like size 30 font. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. In other words, that they successfully deceived you and brought you back into Judaism. Now, up to now, a secretary has been used to write down what Paul dictated. He would dictate, moved by the Holy Spirit, and somebody would write it down. But for the closing verses, he says, give me that pen. I'm going to write these last ones. Consistent with the whole letter, Paul exposes the folly of the false teachers once and for all. In verse 14, he reminds the Galatians that he lived with his eye on Calvary. He says, God forbid. This is a great one. Let's read this together. God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now, verse 15 sums up the entire letter. Here it is in a nutshell. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. That's Galatians in a nutshell. Now, verse 16 gives us a promise. As many as walk according to this rule, the rule of a new creation, not trying to do the law or become righteous by the law, but by faith in Christ and becoming a new creation, you know what you're going to have? Peace and mercy will be upon you and upon the Israel of God. Verse 17 reminds them of the price Paul has paid. He says in verse 17, From now on, let nobody trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. I've told you, if you were to take Paul's shirt off and look at his back, it would look like a map. Crisscrossing whiplashes. He took what Jesus took once. He took five times. It's hard for us to imagine the agony of such a thing. And he didn't have painkillers afterwards. Nothing. I added it up once. 190 lashes, 
Something like that. The word marks is from the Greek word stigma. Remember the Hollywood stigmata? Different people use this Greek word, but stigma is the usual word for a tattoo or a slave brand. He says, I bear in my body slave brands, the marks of the whips and the rods that have beaten me because of my testimony. His body had been branded by the many beatings he'd received. Paul chose, being Paul, Mr. Optimist, he chose to see those scars as evidence of his being Christ's slave. That's how he did it. Are you going to beat me? All right, there's my tattoos. And what do they mean? They mean I'm Christ's slave. Let's stand to read the final passage and we're done. Are you ready? Let's read it. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Let's lift our hands and give thanks to God. Father, thank you that we're not saved by the law, but we're saved by grace. Thank you, Lord, that we are not saved by our own performance, but we are saved by your performance. Thank you, Lord, that we're not in a faith that says do, but it's a faith that says done. Thank you, Lord, that we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Thank you, Lord God, for your blessing, your goodness. We praise you, Lord, for this incredible, incredible, spirit-inspired message from the man who saw himself as your slave. We praise you, Father. We bless you. In Jesus' name. Be 